Hello, everyone. This is Artemis with the Uncivilized Podcast. And with me, I have Emmanuel. Emmanuel, how are you doing today? I'm doing good. How are you doing today? I'm doing all right. So today we're going to talk about spirituality, religion, its connection to anarchism and anarcho-primitivism in particular. And the reason we wanted to talk about this is I just read a book recently called Inside the Neolithic Mind that posited some really interesting theories about like the origin of religion and its relationship to our neurochemical makeup. And I didn't buy all of it, particularly that like so many like so-called tribal or pre-industrial peoples, their cosmology is basically like a representation of our like neural pathways. It's this whole deep thing. But it really got me thinking, in addition to the conversations that Emmanuel and I have about spirituality and religion, I felt like perhaps that would be a really interesting uh, podcast topic. So Emmanuel, do you want to get into a little bit and maybe this, you know, we can get into it more later. What is your understanding of religion and your relationship to it? Uh, well, I guess the most important thing is to distinguish, like, what is religion versus what is what you could call spirituality. Because uh, I think it's interesting to note in what is religion versus what is not religion that when the uh, the missionaries first arrived in um, the New World, that they, they like, they said that the native people did not have religion because they did not like see their beliefs and their experiences as religion. And I think that that, I think that that's correct, but not in the way that they mean. I don't think it's correct in the sense that, that uh, European religion is superior to what they found. I think that there is like a fundamental difference in, in what the two different uh, peoples experienced. Wouldn't you agree with that? Yeah. And- it comes up a little bit, and my understanding is uh, I'm also reading Bury My Heart and Wounded Knee. Bury My Heart at Wounded Knee, excuse me. Um, in addition to just other reading, is that these people, obviously, we're talking about a large swath of communities and individuals, did see, like, yeah, we're, we have religion, but it's nothing like yours, right? You worship this abstract, unseeable thing. And while they might have had those features in their religions, or their their cosmology. Their cosmology was much more centered on like the day-to-day applicability, you know what I mean? Like the relationship with land, the relationship with the features in the land and the people around them. They might have had like the so-called great spirit or creator in some way. Um, but you also had more than that, right? You had a living world around them. And of course, the more co- complex cultures, the, the Triple Alliance, you know, as we know as the Aztecs, the Incas, they had a much more defined cosmology that is probably you know de- comparable to things like christianity or paganism that we understand but yeah i think it gets into an interesting thing is so yeah both culture both sides of it understand the other one like they have a difference in how they view religion and so it's not that it's not religion it's just that they see religion in fundamentally different ways and they relate to it in different ways if that makes sense yeah and i think an important an important feature we can use to distinguish is that for a lot of these, um, a lot of indigenous groups that weren't the ones that fall into the, I don't know if more complex is the correct term, but more, more civilized, not in a positive aspect, of course, this is the, this is the uncivilized podcast here. Uh, you, you, know, you know what I'm getting at, right? Yeah, th- those that have a, a more stratified urban society. Stratified, that, that's a good word for it. Yeah, the, a lot of these less stratified beliefs actually that's the wrong word exactly what i'm getting at is that 
their spiritual experiences are not like abstract belief systems. They are they are the lives that they live in the sense that they are like direct in contact with with these forces that they have given names to. It's not like they don't believe in these faraway spirits. They are putting a name to the, to the very forces that like uh, that are part of their lives and determine like life and death. Yeah. And I'm I'm getting a lot of this from um the Emerald podcast and you got everyone who's listening should go listen to that if they want to go and learn more about the uh the state of human consciousness before in a, like a pre-civilized context. Mm-hmm. But it's it's definitely fair to say from the anthropological evidence that um people hunter gatherers had a very different state of consciousness when you consider things like hunger lack of food lack of water lack of sleep the things similar to like the the runner's high there's all these different contexts that come together and produce a very different consciousness wouldn't go all the way to i don't know if you quite call it hallucinatory hallucinatory or psychedelic but you can imagine that it's very very different from the the chemical reality that we have today yeah that's interesting because there's been debates um over like can we understand can people actually understand other cultures so could the spaniards actually have any insight to the indigenous cultures that they were conquering invading or even studying in some cases um could they understand them like or were they just so separate psychologically speaking like they just could not understand them you know like there is so much that gets into that and that's why when some cultures like the shawnee would adopt I am, you know, they could adopt anyone, but I'll talk about colonizers. Like they have a ritual purification. Like there's an adjustment on the inside going on, according to the Shawnee, when you're adopted. Like you're no longer a white person, you're Shawnee, right? Like there's a there's a fundamental change in that person. And I think that has to be in some way, like to them, it's a neurological or you want to call it spiritual, right? For them, it's essentially the same thing. Like change going on, right? Um Yeah. So I I I definitely agree with that. I'd like to believe that people are capable of understanding other cultures, but I think in the case of of European colonizers, that that wasn't the case. That they were their their act of studying was not to understand that experience, but to right. categorize it and to like make it make it a dead understandable thing. In the sense that, right? A- according to science, we understand things more than we ever have previously you know i mean like you can look at a material and you can analyze like the uh the chemical content like the uh the atomic numbers you can look at an organism and you can map out its uh nervous system you can map out its genetics and you can understand it completely in terms of numbers and letters and genes but what what kind of understanding is that really mm-hmm. like how does how how do we consider that a superior form of understanding versus because it's 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 a completely alien cold dead separate understanding it is not the everyday understanding it is not yeah. like the personal emotional understanding yeah i mean marshall Solins, who every anarcho primitivist or materialist street wilder needs to read him he had this debate I can't remember the other guy's name off the top of my head, but it was basically on the idea that this other man 
basically believes that indigenous cultures or any people essentially think and have the same thought process as like Westerners, right? But Solon's argued that like each culture has different types of like thought processes, rationality, um, and the patterns of thought are based within cultural narratives. So unless you're immersed in those narratives and raised in them, like you just can't think the same way as them. And so it's not essentialism, like, oh, racially they're different, but the cultural context in which you're raised affects the way you see the world, right? So when people ask, well, did the Greeks actually think the Olympians from the top of Mount Olympus? It's like, well, you can't ask that the same way because they're not thinking of it that way, you know? They're just not. Yeah. So I think that's really interesting. I want to ask you, you're kind of touching on it, but to you... What is the are the defining differences between spirituality and religion, even if that's not the best distinction, right? And in the same way, like technology versus tools, according to primitivists, right? Like it's not for us, it's because we don't have the language really to distinguish them. But for you, what distinguishes those two things, if at all, really? Uh, I feel like it's a it's a pretty hard it's a pretty hard uh, question for me to answer because a lot of the times when you hear spirituality at least in in the uh united states context you're probably gonna come i mean at least for me it conjures the image of like a a white woman hippie in which case like their spirituality is largely just regurgitated christianity with some like uh traditional european flavorings so i feel like that still falls into the same category of religion in that case but if you if we want to like make a quote-unquote genuine spirituality, then I think it has to be centered in... It has to be centered in lived experience and in ritual. Not ritual as in, like, the sense of, um... Like, something that's being reified. Yeah, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Ritual in the sense of... Like, the sense that all, all of these old gods that you can find in any culture, whether it's, uh... America, Africa, Asia, all of these traditional gods, they don't make sense in the modern context because we're not doing things like rearing sheep, tending to crops, going on hunts. Right. We're not doing right. these things. Right. We, so adopt you, those things. You can't, you, can't be a, you can't understand and be a part of those religions in this modern context in the sense that, like, what, you're going to believe in, like, the, the god of shepherding when you go to, like, your office job? Like, what does that even mean? That's just, that's a completely abstract belief system. You're not in contact with those forces at all. And so what so, I think you're getting at, when you say ritual, maybe you meant to say, like, the life ways are not compatible. Yes, yes, yes. That's, that's a way better description. So I feel like in that sense that, that rewilding and what we could call genuine spirituality are not I don't think you could even say that they're like that they're related but that they are directly they are one and the same in a sense that rewilding rewilding without without spirituality is just like it's just like white colonial you know like survivalist larping like what do these skills are completely un- useless when they're separated from from the life ways from which they emerged and in mm-hmm. the same sense you can't you can't rediscover these life ways if you're still practicing like a completely, completely absorbed life way. That, if you can even call it that of the modern day, when it comes to rewilding and stuff, like obviously I don't expect 
that a lot of people are going to be able to like run off and be a, a shepherd or whatever. I think it's a lot larger than that and a, a lot different for everyone's circumstances. But uh, mm-hmm. I was going to say that reminds me. I'm going to refer to John Zerzan a, a couple of times here because I think he's one of the best uh, primitivists to talk about this because he spent so much time talking about religion and ritual. Uh, but he says he well he met camera maybe 2005 i think he met this woman he was on a tour in turkey met this woman who was just she had to make a bus and she didn't have the time to talk about it but she said i think the way you're talking about green anarchy is like a spiritual revolution and that like stuck with him and more recently he's told me and he's talked about in other places how a lot of his writings have been centered on kind of quasi-spiritualist themes and yeah like you this i you know i consider myself a materialist i'm a cultural materialist um in some sense but I can't imagine a world based in, if you want to call it wild nature, nomadist, whatever term you want to use, without some type of spiritual feature. And that doesn't mean, like, sacrificing the ego to some abstract concept, but, like, to noticing and recognizing and giving names and respect to the things around you and recognizing them as equals to yourself is, in many ways, a very... To me, that A, that's radical, because we don't do that, right? Capitalism and statecraft negate those things. But it's also, many people call that spiritual. Whether or not we think it is doesn't matter. But that's what many people consider to be spiritual is the recognition of the respect of everything around us, you know? I, I agree. Like, for, for what we could say, I don't know if we all, are, are we like wasps, white Anglo-Saxon Protestants? Like, for the average wasp American who's like, um, only, ex- like, who's ex- like experience of religion or spirituality is rooted not if not directly in christianity then like in vaguely christian values like i feel like it's like a post-christian humanism that we kind of exist in now yeah i feel like you can still feel the most base instinct in the sense of you feel even if you can't put into words the awe of being in certain places like you can recognize the power even if you don't have even if you haven't created like a formal relationship with it right it's still there yeah. i mean for me you know i've written about this recently and i want to publish it somewhere uh, but i grew up roman catholic in a catholic school and i left the faith when i was 12 or 13 years old and i had some flirting with like non-denominational christianity but it never hit the right spot i tried to be like pagan for a while like i flirted with so much shit i treated it like a buffet <laughs> um and only more recently Am I affirmed in my, I'm, I'm not Catholic, but I consider myself in some way to be culturally Catholic. Like, I grew up in that, like, that's my background. I was raised fairly traditionally Catholic in, like, the social teaching and, like, the morality of Catholicism in many ways influences who I am today. And, like, when I go, if I visit a Catholic church, yeah, it's a very constructed, civilized place. I can still feel the awe there. And there is something, you know, hunter-gatherers, I can't think of a single hunter-gatherer group, or even like early agriculturalists, or con- contemporary low-scale agriculturalists that don't have places of spiritual energy in their lo- in their cosmos. Right? It might be a hill, a mountain, a lake. Like there, it is essential to their life that that place stays that way. Right? Black Mesa for many of the the indigenous peoples uh, out west. Right? Similar thing. Um, it's it's so it's almost like we've taken 
we've imprisoned these places and constructed them in a civilized image, so to speak, where it can be built and replicated anywhere, as opposed to this place has taken millions of years to form and our ancestors have a relationship to it. We have a relationship to it. Our descendants will have a relationship to it. You know what I mean? It's it's like a, a simulation of spiritual places. Yeah, I think that, and I think that that draws a really fundamental division, or it shows you this division between, like, uh, what you could call secular ecology and a relationship with nature. Because right. on one hand. Do you want do you want to to protect this forest because you're concerned about like resources or do you want to protect this forest because you know the forest and you've been in the forest and you don't want it to be wounded those are two right. very different things Yeah and in addition to that the people that tend to be very secular very grand narrative uh ecologists are also the ones that are like I'm not a you know, I want to keep it, but because it's beneficial to me, not because it is good on its own, right? It's not because, oh, the bee, the bee doesn't bring, not because the bee brings me pleasure, but because the bee is a bee, it deserves this, right? Yeah. That it's, I see it as an equal or at least independent of my own cognition in a sense. That's not the right, because that kind of gets into idealism, but its value is not dependent on the value I give it. And so... Kind of relating back to what you were talking about earlier, do you, what is the anarchist, do anarchists necessarily need to reject all religion or spirituality? You're, before we called, we were talking, or before we recorded, we were talking about the Spanish Civil War, and that's an interesting one, because that's one of the most intense anarchists' relationships to the church, or to religion in general. So do you want to touch on that? Yeah, I, I would... Maybe this sounds uh, ridiculous, but I would even argue that spirituality is essential to anarchism at this stage of its existence. Because I feel like when you analyze this through a historic perspective, anarchism has had a very strong stance against religion because for a long time, religion has been basically the prop as the as the anarchists of Spain saw it, the propaganda wing of the state that it is um a highly oppressive force that's enmeshed with the state structure and it basically is the culture that says uh you know you don't need wealth wait for the heavenly kingdom and all that so if you're coming from that context you abs like absolutely i would be anti-religious and i still consider myself anti-religious in that sense anti-clerical anti-church yes and yes, now i want to be living yeah anti-clericalism is the rejection of religious authority I mean, it's it's secular in the sense of separation of, of church from private life or from social life, right? So it's not anti-religion. Yeah. It's anti-religion telling me what to do. Yes. And now, in today's world, we're in the climate of of the, the dead, lifeless world. And mm -hmm. it's our job to resurrect it. Not to say that it is dead in the literal sense, but... In, in the modern consciousness, the world is a dead thing, and mm -hmm. that is why all of the torments that industrialism and civilization inflicts are acceptable. Yes, that's a great way to put it. It's like, you, there is no culture that is rooted in, and Derek Jensen talks about this. First of all, fuck Derek Jensen, but Derek Jensen talks about, I think it's, 
I want to say it's an endgame. He's talked about it in other places, but no people that are rooted in a land-based life can destroy its base. Conscious, like, in a, in a way that's consistent with its own ethics, right? It can't consistently yeah. do that. Because it wouldn't make sense. It's, 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 at that point, it would be a self-defeating culture, right? So you need to give up part of the acknowledgement of a living land in order to destroy it or to exploit it. And that's why, I mean, I, so again, with, like, the Black Hills um, and, like, the, the peoples that lived and still live there, uh, like, even the idea of just mineral rights, they're like, no, like, you're taking it from the land. Like, there is something essential to this. And basically, the, the, the commissioners that were sent by the Bureau of Indian Affairs would just be like, I'm tired of talking religion with you. Like, you're just talking nonsense. And they're like, are, are you're the one to talk nonsense. They basically say, the, first of all, you can't own land, right? It's like, they can't even conceive of the notion of owning land. And they're like, who is, they, I'm going to paraphrase, but they're basically saying, who is insane, the one that worships the land or the one that destroys it? And so I find that really interesting. And, you know, uh, Freddie Perlman talks about a lot of this and against history, against Leviathan. You know, we imprison the gods in the temples, right? And what we need is like, and we'll go, I want to get into this later towards the end uh, in how I think anarchists and primitivists should relate to religion. But this idea of like the ecstatic, right? The dance, we need to be able to dance and live and commune with one another. And again, that's very spiritual. And I want to touch on that more later. Um, but if there's anything else, kind of this first section here has been like, what is religion, right? Um, yeah, and so I want to get into some of the, the anthropology or sources of religion because that might help us clarify. But is there anything else you wanted to touch on before we moved on? Yeah, I think my my final point would be uh, not not to venture into what you could call essentialism when it comes to humans, but I think that it's fair to say that that spiritual belief, spiritual practice, spiritual experience is a fundamental part of the human experience and if if we see anarchism as the repairing the healing how we how how we get get somewhere better from where we are in this devoid life then it has to include that to some degree like you have to that's that's another wound that needs to be healed that's i mean yeah it's about the wound and i that's i fucking love that metaphor like it is a it is a spiritual wound it is a I mean, if we're so alienated from one another, right, anyone that's radical at all is going to acknowledge we're alienated because of our work, by our work, from our work, from one another, by one another, right? There's something, because of our nature as social creatures, and I know there's been people like, oh, you can't make essential statements about humanity, which is like, just at that point, just shut the fuck up. Like, if you think we're somehow so distinct from from like animals that there's nothing essential about us but there's essential things about other animals like that just doesn't hold up first of all that just postmodernist bullshit and really it's just inherited from christianity in my opinion that we're we're above animals in that sense right that we're we don't have animal nature right mm-hmm. um because we're gregarious like this life weight is entirely incompatible and so we need a spiritualism that is compatible with our gregarious nature if that makes sense. And of course, that doesn't mean there's one spiritual solution. I don't mean to imply that at all. Yeah, of course. What I, say, what I should say is there are things that are and are not compatible, and that opens up many different packages of spiritual existence. Jamie, for example, a guest who's been on, um, he's talked about like the bear spirit, right? His he got uh his smokestack, I think, smoke shack, where he's you know, smoking fish, got attacked by a bear, 
Um, and he left out some extra for it in hopes that it would like appease the bear spirit for him. And that's a living method for him. I mean, he lives out in bumfuck nowhere, Alaska, right? And like that is essential for him. And he said that it worked because it would be uncommon for a bear to realize there's easy food here. I w- I'll come back, but it didn't, right? So maybe in some way he had appe- in his mind, I had appeased the bear spirit, you know? Yeah. And so fun fact for those that I think we talked about it, but in those episodes that we did, um, in the first. <laughs> In the or in the second one, there he kept looking out for the bear to come back. So there's a few times where you can hear him like stepping outside onto his porch because he's making sure the bear's not outside. <laughs> I think that but that's yeah. a really good example of like uh, breaking away from the the secular dead thought because that's what that's what um, if if you're living in a completely secular scientific rational world that says. Well, logically, if you leave food for a bear, then you're going to attract the bear. So don't do that. And I feel like this sort of this way, this line of thinking in which like there's a solution, there's a clear cut solution to every issue. It just leaves life devoid of so much. And there's so much room in life for absurd and unexplainable things to happen. Mm. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I, I, I just find all that so fucking interesting um and maybe how like how far back does some of those practices go you know Mm -hmm. um and i know there's so many theories and i want to get into those now is what are the roots of religion and of course when i say religion i'm including animism for the sake of it for this and some things i want to clarify is animism is not a religion like christianity and while christianity has some variety in it it has a common source of the church right the proto-catholic church proto-orthodoxy whatever the fuck you want to call it uh, animism, though, is a term that we use to just describe large, large swaths and in examples of indigenous religions. They're usually based in there may be gods, there might not be gods, but typically the god is not the center of the faith, right? It's the it's the river spirit, it's the spirit of the trees, the spirit of the woods, the spirit of the deer, right? This and it's like a reciprocal relationship, this give and take that goes on to extend into later pagan. Uh, Bronze Age and post-Bronze Age religions, but it's more more apparent here, right? So to be clear, and then I might reference shamanism. Shamanism is one of those weird ones. Like the notion of a shaman is really only found in Siberia, but we've taken that term and expanded it. Same thing with like totemism, right? Where we find it and it's named in one culture, and then we find commonalities in others, and then we use that term to describe those. Does that make some sense? To be clear. Okay. Cool. Um, So. One possible source of this is rooted in the belief in the afterlife and burials. And what's really interesting is if that's true and archaeological evidence holds up, religion is older than our species. Um, which comes with Homo Naledi, who may or may not have been doing burials roughly 300,000 years ago, which is almost as... And we have evidence for burials about 150, 160,000 years ago. So, like, that's almost double the amount of time. And Homo Naledi had a brain significantly smaller than ours and is generally considered to be more archaic. Now, it has features that are, quote-unquote, like, anatomically modern, but it's very weird. Like, it could climb trees, but its wrists was, like, more Homo sapien-looking. I mean, this thing looks like if you took, like, Australopithecus and like a primitive Homo sapien and just like mash them together. It's very, it's very unique. Um, but there seems to be something in that. Like, okay, there's an afterlife, and the ancestors are people 
are constantly influencing our life. So it's not so much the gods that are doing that, right? If they believe in gods, but it's the people who have already existed and continue to exist. Death is not the end. It is the entrance to another life, right? The, the, it's like the shadow world, the spirit world, whatever you want to call it. Um, it's perhaps that's rooted in a material need. Uh, the material need being, okay, we liked these people that passed away. We don't want to see them just eaten, right? Though some cultures today still do that and seem disrespectful, but some cultures might not have. Or it could have been, you know, we're setting up camp and we need to get rid of the body. We don't want to attract um, animals or parasites. So you move them. Uh, now, the Homo Naledi are even like really old burials are seeing as, oh, what if they got washed in or they were just moving the bodies? Because a burial... The, this, the movement of a body and a burial aren't the same thing, right? The burial implies mm-hmm. there's like a there's like an emotional connection. You're moving it because you respect the body, as opposed to you're just moving it because I just don't want it near me. And maybe it yeah. started it started in this more practical way and then built up the so-called ritual context, right? Um, and then what comes first, the burial or the afterlife? The conception of those two things. And I think that's impossible to know. Do we bury first and then the afterlife is born from that, like I was touching on? Or do we develop a sense of afterlife and then bury in accordance with that? Does that make sense? Yeah. And now, if you believe I, in an afterlife, if you believe in an afterlife, all those other things we know from religion kind of come in pretty quickly. Or, like, organically, I think. Mm-hmm. Did, were you going to say something? Yeah, I think that, that burial also is a, a very important emotional regulation tool. Yeah, there's a sense of... too dry a, of a word. Yeah, I mean, there's a sense of closure that would come with it. Definitely. Yeah, I mean, who is the culture that they they sometimes still put their dead on the mountainside and let, like, birds of prey? Is it Tibetan? Is that Tibetan? Yeah. It's somewhere it was in the mountains. Yeah, okay, I think you might be right off the top of my head, but you know, and that's interesting because they're not doing that, right? But they're still moving the bodies, but there's still a sense of like something is being transformed. It's a transformative process. Um, So, I mean, and of course, different burial practices might have varied or they would have varied. That's just a fact. If we're talking about a pre-global period for, and we're talking in the span of hundreds of thousands, possibly millions of years, right? And that's a stretch, but still, to think there's no variety at all, is kind of fucking crazy to think, right? Um, but yeah, so that's an interesting one. Alternatively, you also have this idea of like the it's a response to social fissure or social breakdown, and this is really apparent in some of Zerzan's writing. Religion, um, you mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, so religion develops as a response to social breakdown or social fissures. So I'm going to quote uh, Zerzan three times. The first is from Future Primitive, and the second or the second and the third are from failure of symbolic thought. So the first one from Future Primitive says, Ritual and magic must have dominated the early Upper Paleolithic art and were probably essential, along with an increasing division of labor for the coordination and direction of community. So there it's why people, why is it that we could direct community before, but suddenly we can't, right? There's some some change here, and as he touches on, it's the division of labor. Um, Secondly, uh, from failure of symbolic thought, essential for the breakthrough of the cultural and human affairs, ritual is not only a means of aligning and prescribing emotions, it is also a formalization that is intimately linked with hierarchies and former rule over individuals. All known tribal societies and early civilizations had hierarchical organizations built on or bound up with a ritual structure and matching conceptual system. 
in the third quote, abstentiously supported to estrangement, or, or excuse me, abstentially opposed to estrangement, the counterworld of public rights is arrayed against the current of historical direction. But again, this is a delusion. Since ritual facilitates the establishment of the cultural order, bedrock of alienated theory and practice, ritual authority structure Ritual authority structures play an important part in the organization of production, the division of labor, and actively further actively furthers the coming of domestication. Symbolic categories are set up to control the wild and alien, thus the domination of women precedes a development brought to full realization with agriculture, when women were became essentially beasts of burden and or sexual objects. Part of this fundamental shift is the movement toward, toward territorialism and warfare. Uh, and so... The he goes on to talk about the correspondence between the movement and increased importance of ceremonialism. Uh, when he said this movement, like the movement towards complexity and like domination, and in other places, there's very much like this idea, like you're a secular leader and you're a religious leader or like a religious authority. The line between those, particularly in the Neolithic, that's a really thin line, if at all, right? This idea that like think of like in England and Ireland, those, meta, those megalithic structures, right? It's very possible the people that were coordinating those were religious, but if you're coordinating that labor and and who gets to work, who doesn't work, who has access, that's political, right? Yeah. And so it is both political and spiritual or religious. Yeah, and that's obviously a very, very uh, formidable undertaking to do. Yeah. It takes a lot, so, of, a lot of labor hours. Right, and so the way I think of it is what I think John is getting at here and what other uh, archaeologists and anthropologists are talking about is through the division of labor, things are breaking down and those might be happening because of an intentional human action or it's a response to something. I'm not going to get into whether those things are good or bad. People kind of know my opinion, but religion seems to probably be acting as a justification for those things, right? It, it also, it's like the carnival in medieval Europe. It allows people usually to like have this ecstatic break it's a controlled like oh you can't rebel but i'll give you a controlled period in which you can and that might be really ritual on the other hand it also affirms like okay the difference between man and woman um men and women excuse me um and their role in the world like women do rituals separately men do rituals separately you have these coming of age things right you know they're affirming the things that exist in the material world those distinctions does that make sense yeah yeah i got it did you want to hit any more of those quotes again? Because you went through them pretty fast, and those are uh, do some tough language. Yeah, so I'll break that first one, that ritual and magic. Um, again, it's like, and John has this funny piece called it The Case Against Art, and I find it really funny. Because uh, he says it's a provocative title, but like art, like even like things like art, like what we consider to just be like whatever now. Like they have roots probably in shamanism or like some type of like secular religious authority is doing art. Maybe it's, you know, it's some like hallucinatory state coming of age in some way it is bound with religion. And again, it's uh, with the division of labor to be clear. So there's a lot of relationship between those. Uh, the second one essential for the breakthrough in human cultural affairs, whatever is basically that ritual. I'd like to was talking about because is able to prescribe and control those emotions and then it's acting again as a sort of like cover and justification for the secular or the material authority. Uh, and then the third one is that the symbolic, the 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 ritual, whatever. It's, it essentializes and and reifies women, the alien, the wild. And there's some really interesting feminist 
like ecological like green feminists, ecological feminists who talk about like the the co-domination of women in nature. And John makes a really great point in other places that perhaps those two things correlated. The domination of women and the domination of nature probably developed hand in hand. Right. And so he's kind of touching on that there as well. And so there's some there's the more intense the ceremonies and rituals become, there usually is a correspondence to social domination. But that is not always true because there are some hunter gatherers who are almost always sedentary, though, that have really intense ritual life. So it's not a one size fits all, but we can talk very generally about these types of things. Right. Uh So I, I've broken those down. If people are more interested, I'll still, you know, I'll include the sources and such in the in the in the description. And I recommend going to those and getting the full picture of what he's talking about. Uh, I wanted to bat, uh, kind of jump forward a little bit. So we're kind of talking Paleolithic. Uh, and earlier I mentioned the Inside the Neolithic Mind. It's a it's a book. It's really kind of like boring textbook at times, but it's really great in others. And so they have this theory that in the Levant domestication of animals and plants is probably correlated and related somehow to ritual that shamans or spiritual leaders in the levant wanted to flex their power over spirits and we're doing that by herding animals and controlling animals so you went from sheep and goats to the auroch which becomes modern day cattle right and they kind of they tip that from like the emphasis on 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 animal like structures so like what i mean by that is like uh, statues and carvings in these in these what seem to be temples or proto temples and and basements and caverns uh, which are kind of like when i was kind of talking earlier the churches and temples kind of replace spiritual sites these places are kind of becoming the new caves where a lot of the spiritual practices in the paleolithic would have happened in caves they create their own caves for the lack of a better word and that's where the religion is happening that makes a lot of sense to me because um, if you consider that uh, humans living like in in a web of life, you could say having their their ecological reach being checked by other creatures, it really would be quite a magnificent, incredible, almost magical thing to see another human being dominating these these wild these previously wild creatures. And being right. able to make make caves like these things that humans have had to hide in from predators, and now man can construct it. It it makes sense that those go hand in hand. And not just that, but it's not I can do it. But if I see you, let's say I have a a herd of like twenty goats, and you have thirty goats. Now I want more than you, or it's not just more than you. I need an animal that's more powerful than yours. Right? Mm. It's those animals that might have historically been more difficult to domesticate or even just tame and herd might have held more social capital for the shamans or whatever term you want to use from the spiritual leaders in this that book you know i i'm not going to quote from it just because it's so fucking dense but i highly recommend that people look at it i'll consider if i can find really strong excerpts i'll put them in the description or in the comment section for people to read but it's so it the book really sold me on that and you know that also gets into plant like oh well you need the animals you need to feed the animals you need the plants and if you're coordinating large projects like this you need people to feed and so there's probably a correlation and there's other theories i don't believe it's discussed in the neolithic mind but the um the the role of alcohol might have have had a place in rituals and we kind of like entering secondary you know states of mind alcohol might have had a role and therefore we need to domesticate the plants necessary for that 
Um, and again, yeah. this might have happened. This and, and to be clear, this could have happened a million different ways in different places, right? Uh, but again, I'm only talking about the Levant right now in some of the locations in which the, the spiritualism seems to have been kind of like a coordinated state more than others or could have been central for the for the local religion. Um, it could have been, it happened in totally different ways, could happen in parallel ways, opposite ways, whatever it is. Um, and again, it depended on where you were. In the same way, like the wolf might have been domesticated as a dog, happened in different places at different times, right? Religion might have played a similar or had a similar historical uh, development. Yeah, this might be uh, veering off a little bit, but since you brought up alcohol, I thought it would be interesting to mention that uh, one of the bits I was reading recently in the Spanish Civil War book was how um, the the fascists gave, like right when they were first doing their uprising in Spain, they gave like the, the civil guards, which were like the police, they gave them uh, like whiskey and then said, uh, hey, we have to take down this anarchist uprising. And that really just was like reinforcing my view that um, that alcohol is kind of I would say it's it's almost like a, a tool for like inducing like uh, inducing I don't know what the right word is but like uh, almost allowing people to fall into like reactionary violence they wouldn't otherwise. I mean we already know how alcohol was given to native people to screw them over and to right. to make deals that were much favorable to the, the colonizers. And basically mm-hmm. just how, like, as a drug, it's it makes people do things that they otherwise wouldn't. Yeah. I, and again, like, with the indigenous people, like, how many, you know, I was, you know, you can read the, um, there's this really great book on Tecumseh that I just read. So this book on Tecumseh, Tecumseh and the Prophets about his, you know, him and his brother. And part of his brother at having this, like, his spiritual rebirth and becoming a major prophet, for him, it's no alcohol. Because it is that literally like destroys entire communities, um, especially when it comes to reservation life, and that continues to happen today. Uh, there's some really great anti, for lack of a better word, anti-alcohol pieces about anarchists and indigenous people, um, and it doesn't mean like prohibition, but like there needs to be a critique of alcohol for its role in like domestic abuse, right? Like which I would consider a form of reactionary violence, domestic abuse. Alcohol plays yeah. a major role in that today. Right, but like you said, it can also uh, play a structural political role, uh, giving alcohol among the indigenous people or to the royal guard. Uh, yeah, and so, you know, I've talked about I'm straight edge. I don't drink. I have a background with drinking, and my family has alcohol problems. Um, and so I see what that does, and I wonder, it's so interesting to think how that might have played a historic role among, even, you know, how are there parallels to in, in, uh, the colonialism of America and alcohol? and the colonialism of Neolithic farmers and hunter-gatherers the world over, you know? And even in recent history, it's obvious how uh, alcohol is like a, it's like a way to recuperate what little money the, uh, the, lower, the lower classes even have in the first place. You know, you get out of work, now you have to go buy alcohol to calm down, to regulate your emotions. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And I'm not straight edge, but I have definitely reconfigured my relationship with substances after understanding the the dulling effect that it has and how just it makes you bored and realizing all of these, these negative effects that come with regular substance use. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess, I mean, that's all for I want to give on the anthropology or history of religion. 
because I don't want to get into how it developed because that's not my realm and that's not totally what I'm interested in. But I will say this quickly is there's a really good piece. I think it's to rust metallic gods to write. Yeah. To rust metallic gods. Um, it was a piece that was in uh, Kevin Tucker's um, black and green review back in maybe issue one or issue two. And it's a, it's basically anarcho primitivist like critique of paganism or something like that. I don't think they use those exact words, but maybe they do. And it's really interesting because it's like, you were talking about those gods, like, Oh, the God is shepherding or the God of metallurgy. It's like, those only have a role in civilization. Like these are bronze age gods and they reflect a bronze age lifestyle. They're not found. Like I, I, you can't point to like, they're like, for example, if you worship, if you worshiped Helios, you don't point in the sun and be like, that's Helios. Right, that's not. He represents the sun. He's not the sun. Right, the same way shepherding. The act of shepherding is a is a ritual reenactment of these gods, but like it's still based in domination and domestication. If that makes some sense. Yeah, it does. So, yeah, I guess. But yeah, what I want to move on to, like I was getting into, is how do primitivists relate to religion? How does all this matter? And I'm not here to say the solution or what the answer is, because I think. For asking uh, five primitivists a question, you'll get ten different answers, you know. So, so for you, I want you to—I would love to hear, you know, someone who identifies as a primitivist. What is your relationship to spirituality? Well, we've talked a lot off podcast about how I've been on my journey to to rediscover spirituality. Rediscover in the sense that, regardless of your your ethnic makeup, at some point down the line you had ancestors that were spiritual whether or not they were conquered and lost that or whether or not they became conquerors and lost that there everyone had a culture at some point and mm-hmm. you know i I, to- I said before that we have these limitations like we i can't ever practice spirituality the same way that my ancestors did because i don't live in that same in that same uh, cultural material context, but that doesn't mean that you can't do anything. Mm-hmm. I guess it's it's hard to it's hard to go into like my specific practices. Yeah, because it's not really like a well developed. I'm still I'm still combining what comes naturally to me in terms of uh, respect for for places and beings, and uh, using using my different heritages and their spiritual traditions to 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 learn more and to uh develop those those uh experiences further mm-hmm. i don't cool. think Where that i'll go on i don't, obviously i don't think that um that spirituality should be forced onto anyone because obviously people have a very good reason for for uh like the the strong atheist impulse which is like religious trauma because you know religion has done all this awful shit for the last 10,000 years and longer but i don't think that becoming being a, a uh the whole world is dead sort of worldview is the uh is the the best healing path that's my that's my belief mhm what does it look like day to day or maybe when maybe obviously it probably works better when you're immersed right when you're immersed in in the cosmology or the, the nature or whatever you know whatever uh, what does it look like yeah. on a practical level for you uh 
it's going to sound really like uh, woo-woo, because that's what a lot of spirituality sounds like if you're not immersed in it. I guess it's just like uh, paying like respect and uh, just acknowledging the movements of different forces around me, like the sense of awe I feel when I see um, hawks, vultures, crows going overhead, all these other beings who like are, are unique beings with their own experiences and lives as well as other forces like uh storm clouds and stuff like that that just give off this aura of, of power these sort of things different uh forests and stuff even if they are like um not old growth i think that they do have some sort of spirit not in like a anthropocentric sense of like a, a ghost or like something that has a definite identity mm-hmm. yeah very cool and I, I i would say that i one of the ways that i try and uh, express it is through like um appealing to to the qualities of different animals and materials like just look, looking at an animal or a place or something and what type of what type of power does it give off to me like if i'm looking at it you know if you're looking at a, a bird of prey you might think of qualities like uh their vision their speed their predatory ability and so if i run into like a a piece of that of that creature like a bone or a feather then i feel like those those become like shamanic tools almost like uh, that mm. those hold the power and it, it's it's a way of of bringing bringing that creature into my life. You know, what I mean, like it may be dead now, or it might just be a part of it has been shed away. And but mm-hmm. now it, I'm even if it's just a little bit, my our, my life is a little more intertwined with these creatures. Yeah, I like that. For me, that remi- oh my god, I wish I talked about this earlier. That reminds me, for a lot of particularly hunter gatherers, I can't speak to pastoralists or early agriculturalists but this idea of like becoming animal or taking on traits of an animal during either rituals or when you hunt and kill something you take on part of its energy or essence and i think there's something really interesting about that that reciprocal relationship taking you're taking in not just the meat but there's like a spiritual essence to it a change goes on you know and that just yeah yeah i i i I do agree with that, and that's part of the reason why I've been look, thinking more about my diet recently. Not because I think it's wrong to kill animals for substance, because that's what a lot of animals do. But I do want, I do want to make sure that uh, the animals I consume are like uh, in a more responsible way, and not like animals that have been tortured and slaughtered in factory farms. And I would like to get to the point where I can have the personal relationship of hunter and prey. Mm-hmm. And I feel like that will bring me my relationship to these animals to like a new level of understanding. Yeah, yeah. Um, I also want to talk about some other things. Uh, I appreciate, first of all, you being able to express that. Um, but some other ways I think that people do relate, I'm not saying I'm not condoning or supporting whatever, is some like new age nature worship, like neo-Druidism. I see that among some primitivists. They just... Some of them are just pagan, like, oh, I'm a Norse pagan, right, or whatever. Some of them kind of just appropriate in whatever that means to you. Indigenous culture, like, they have no relationship to it. They're just like, oh, that looks cool. I want to do that. You know what I mean? And, of course, some people say any nature-centered faith is going to be appropriation, and I think that's a load of bullshit, right? 
there's of yeah. course, like I said earlier, the the green anarchist spiritual revolution, or which to me is like neo animism, modern animism. Uh, and that reminds me, I want to quote Perlman. I talked about him earlier from Against History, Against Leviathan. He talks about this, and I quote, The communities resist every incursion, every enslavement, every rape. The story of the invasion is also the story of the interminable ch- resistance. Is the interminable because it has no term, because it is not a cycle, because it is not a part of the rhythm of life. The resistance is not primarily a clash of arms, even if it is the spectacular battles of the proto-Leviathanic Aztecs give the impression that the resistance is in spears. The resistance is in the drums, not in the spears. It is in the music, in the rhythms lived by communities whose myths and ways continue to nurture and sustain them. To me, that's what I was kind of talking about earlier. Like, again, what Zerzan experiences like this, it is our resistance must be spiritually oriented. And as you said, there's no rewilding without spiritualism. And John Moore ref- quotes that as a critique of Ted Dzinski, that for Ted, his resistance was the spear. Right, it was the bomb, but like that's that can't be it. That can't be primarily what our resistance. Our resistance can't always be this physical clash. It has to be, and I know some people understand this a different way. It has to be like interpersonal and personal. You know, you can't just. And I hate like you know liberals argue this. You can't change the world if you can't change yourself. But in some way, that is kind of true, right? Because if you're just carrying on the same badges as before, then you're not changing anything. If your spiritualism is is real, then it should bring you into conflict with with the modern life. If your spiritualism is is completely compatible with our industrial capitalist society, then it's it's just completely subsumed horse shit. Right, right. Just like the Calvinists, right? The the Protestant work ethic is built entirely for this, and the Catholics, you know, they've tried to adjust, but they're basically just a remnant of feudalism at this point. Um, yeah. And the last, the last one that I find interesting, because uh, I come from this background myself, um, and I know people who are. There's been people that have reached out to me because of they want to be on the podcast or the zine. But Christian anarcho-primitivism, and well, I was one that identified as that way. I didn't realize that had been a thing already. Like there is like a background early 2000s. Like John and Kevin Tucker know about them, and they spoke to these groups of Christian anarcho-primitivists. It's really interesting. They're, they read the Bible through this like anti-civ lens. It's it's really I don't really get it because I was I admit my Christian primitivism was just really ignorant, like synthesizing two things that didn't really work. Uh, but some of them they really make an effort to do that. I, in my personal opinion, I don't get it. I just don't. And when I talk to them, I just I'm not seeing it. Uh, but hey, I'm not going to tell them they can't do that because that's not my place. But I don't yeah. know, do you have any thoughts, any thoughts on people that try to take these, like, Abrahamic faiths and trying to connect them to uh, anti-civilization? Yeah, I think that uh, Christianity's not going anywhere. And uh, I think that the more libertarian-aligned Christian faiths, like, if that's gonna, if that's gonna rise, that's, that's a good thing comparative to the other, uh, flavors that are also getting quite popular. But I do think it's obviously important for Christian anarcho-primitivists in the United States to acknowledge their relationship, like, in the class structure and as, like, beneficiaries of colonialism. Mm -hmm. Like, everyone, everyone who benefits from colonialism needs to, but you can see where the, the hypocrisy could come from of you know, the Christian and Prim on their homestead of stolen land. Right. 
right like how lucky you get to do that huh yeah of course there i know someone like that and he just hits the well there's no real really there's no indigenous people left because they're all civilized anyways so shut the fuck up shut the fuck up yeah that's stupid yeah, big surprise, the, the homesteading Christian doesn't really have an understanding of uh, colonialism, big fucking surprise. That's, ju- that's just the the complete form of genocide, then, You're saying that people don't even exist anymore, and you get to just take their land. What's the difference between you and and any unapologetic fascist colonizer? Well, I mean, that's what the Spanish did, it's like, oh, we can have this land, because you're not really people anyway, so, yeah, you know. I mean, it's the same thing. And one other one I want to touch on, and I also have some background in this, and I know a lot of people tend to be predisposed to this, is Taoism. Taoism and, like, Zen Buddhism. John Moore was really into Zen Buddhism uh, before he passed. Well, at least I know he kind of had this rupture with primitivism later, but whatever. Um, because Taoism, uh, uh, you know, this gets into the Western bias. Is the religion or is it not? And I think the easy way to say it is there are some that do fit more of a definition, some forms of Taoism that fit the definition of religion, and some that are more quote-unquote spiritualism, right? And it's kind of the this idea of wu-wei, you know, like actionless action or effortless effort kind of appeals a little bit more to this anti-work, anti-civ, you know, kind of yeah. view. And so there's a lot of interesting stuff there that I think um, people don't talk about as much. I think there was a, a little bit of that before you know i came into the scene uh because i can find some old readings on that um but i feel like it's kind of figured out a bit i'm i'm into that actually because uh, i think i've told you that i read some of um ursula lagoon's translation of um of the Tao, and i think that that is didn't i buy that for you Mm, oh yeah yeah yeah. you did for like my birthday or something It was for for Christmas. (laughs) Uh, It's been a while then, but yeah, that I I do think that the way that's a really interesting way to interpret it because uh, was it? I I don't remember who said it. Who who said this metaphor? But like you know, no animal but but the human works. The bear doesn't work. He just goes out and catches fish and berries and stuff. But can you really call that work? Same mm-hmm. for like all of life. Like there is no, there's no work being forced, and yet everything plays its role. I mean, also one thing is, uh, this is just me. Is is it Lagoon or Laguin? I always knew it as Laguin. Yeah, you're probably right. <laughs> I don't know. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I might, you know, I'm a teacher, but I don't know shit. <laughs> but uh. Yeah, I think I, that was that was the last one that came to mind, uh, and I can get into mine real quick because I had you shares again. I you know, I grew up Catholic, and it really, and I hate you know a lot of people talk about religious trauma, and you know I, I have some of that, and I don't want to get into oh what was me ty- territory, but I think there is it had an impact on the way I understand and relate to religion, um, but for me it's like I'm a materialist who lives on the assumption or the pot i live as if animism is real does that make sense like i don't really believe it but i try to live as if it is right i think that's good like that's the you know people always say that like acting is the first step to doing something legitimately yeah and so i mean that's just who i am i'm a rational mind and i'm not trying to say animism's irrational but i need to see it i need to know it that's just the person that i am um that's just you know whatever so i try and it's funny i you know malathi's been on he's and he just he always jokes he said wow uh artemis discovers indigenous religion 
you know, he just makes those jokes. <laughs> and, and talking about like ritual or, or cleansing and things like that is I actually just yesterday uh, smudged for the first time with Malatha and and other and other indigenous people I was invited to. And, you know, I, I found it, it was funny because at first I didn't really have anything. I was first it was humbling. You know, it's cool. Thank you for like inviting me to it. But it was also like afterwards, I, you know, I really was like, wow, I actually felt really good to think about, you know, you're cleansing your mind. So you're cleansing your thoughts, your, you know, your feet, uh, your heart. Right. And then other places you think need that healing or that cleansing. And I actually afterward, I was like, damn, that, that felt really good. Yeah, I find I would I'm definitely I would I would consider myself a rational person. And I'd say that, like, I mean, I, I was atheist for a while and uh, I was very much in the same camp as you. And obviously, I'm not saying that you have to change and be like a, a legitimate animist. You can do whatever you want. And it was for anyone. But uh, at a certain point, for me, at least, I just kind of I f- I found a way to let go of my constant need to like know something in an empirical sense and just give way to my feeling and obviously if you don't feel something if you don't know it in your heart then that's that's just you like you can you can believe or feel whatever you want my beliefs come from how i feel and like my experiences Mm -hmm. like i don't i don't believe that anything i don't believe that anything is alive based off of like a some ancient text or anything or like a, a mythology yeah. That's just how I interpret my feelings of awe. Yeah. I mean, for me, like, I think to me, spiritualism is probably some extension of that feeling. That sense of awe. When people, you know, if you, you know, you went to the mountains or you saw a canyon or a beautiful mosaic environment, you know, some people, it's even in cities, right? Or, you know, whatever. But there is something, there is a feeling with that. You know, it's a lot mm-hmm. of, you know, major religions will argue, oh, that's God or whatever. And I, I don't give a yeah, shit. Yeah, it's God. It's just not your God. <laughs> right. I know. I find that stuff so interesting. And we talked about it earlier. And I, I know I keep thinking we're, we're winding down. But this is such an interesting topic. I wish we had talked about before. We talked about this also before recording is the feeling of sitting around a fire with other people and just talking. Right. Things like that. Again, it's so innate in some way and maybe that you can call that spiritual just the communion with other people face to face in a casual environment yeah. like that you know and maybe what's the what's the value of fire artemis don't you know that my uh, led lamp emits like 400 more lumens yeah right yeah yeah right and you're going you're going blind so shut the fuck up <laughs> yeah but you get what i'm saying like everything doesn't need to be maximally efficient mm-hmm Sometimes yeah. doing things the old-fashioned way has a, has a value that you can't understand and can't be put into numbers until you experience it. I don't know. That sounds a little uh, sounds a little eco-fascist to me. What do you mean? What do you mean we don't worship at the altar of progress? What are you talking about? Oh, <laughs> uh, you know John? us, the eco-fascist podcast. Oh yeah, that's actually our our alternative name. If you didn't know. Thanks everyone who listened and. Hope to speak to you all again soon.